Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Keith, principal and co-founder of the CTO Advisor, and they discuss how Keith has taken on infrastructure modernization projects so he can experience the pain involved and better teach about it, why it's critical to be mindful of technical debt you are taking on, and how the infrastructure team can better support developers at a company. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Finally, it's been like four years I've been checking out your stuff and... Um, it's so cool to actually like see you and have you here, man. Yeah, you've gotten some pretty good uh, interviews in, man. I appreciate all the work you've been doing. I've been trying, you know. So uh, why why did you start the CTO Advisor? Wow, that's a loaded question, Joel. You, you, you uh, started it right off the top, right? Um, yeah, uh-huh. So I guess a better question is, what is the CTO Advisor? Uh, and then the why will start to make a little more sense. I like to be upfront about how I make money. Uh, the CTO, the advisor and CTO is mainly via content. Like uh, we originally set out to create an advisory firm. I have a, a management, a project, I'm sorry, a both a project and a management consulting background. And I had originally thought, you know what? I'll start a business that's a advisory firm but I know most advisory firms don't succeed because of the the need to the revenue is just too up and down. Uh, it's too inconsistent. So I'll augment it with sponsored content because I've done sponsored content uh, before. Come to find out, the sponsored content business is way better than the advisory business. Like the turnaround for me to close a deal and deliver a deal uh, on the content side. So uh, basically helping the big IT vendors of the world connect with my audience is way faster. So I've shifted focus and, and said, okay, the instead of focusing on advisory, which we still do some of, we mainly focus on content and it ended up falling into doing something that I love, which is just, you know, you do content. It's, it's yeah. incredible just talking to people about their journeys and doing stuff and, and helping IT decision makers make decisions. Yeah, no, I mean, I, we didn't make money for the first two years. So we were like 200 episodes in before we made any figured out that people pay for this stuff. <laughs> and then we're like, okay, well, so we created like, you know, deliverable packages and all that type of stuff. And, um, and, and then we sort of like hit a, a growth limit, right? Cause you can only do so many episodes. You can only do so much content. And then we started making content for like other podcasts and other companies. And so that I think is the way that we can grow like much further. Oh, that's pretty interesting. The, uh, I've, I've heard uh, a number of people kind of get into whether it's custom podcasts for, Brands, etc. Is that mainly where it's at? The custom podcast for brands. A company says, "Hey, I want to do, I want to do a podcast, but I have no idea how to do a podcast." Yeah, I mean, that's like the simple version of it. <laughs> yeah, but that, ultimately, you know, we do like everything from like creating the concept or like looking at what's in the marketplace 
basically all the stuff we do for our own brands, you know, like we always have to make sure the content relevant. We always have to make sure the audience is interested in it and, and be checking back and forth. And, and so, um, some of our sponsors like had a lot of success with the podcast and then they started saying, Hey, like, can you make us a podcast? And so we started doing that and that's, um, been doing pretty well. Yeah. So we take a little bit different approach. I love the, the, the gap you're filling. <sighs> It took us a while to kind of figure out who is it that we want to talk to and how do we want that relationship to look like. So we narrowed down on specifically the enterprise IT CTO. We did an uh, interview with the CTO of the New York Times uh, some months ago, some time to go, ago and talked to him specifically about making the transition to serverless and talking about the business of IT versus your angle, which I really appreciate, which is kind of the, uh, I, I love the, you, you cover some of that, but you, you, yours is more of a superset and where you're talking about the product as, as well as kind of the business of IT. Yeah, I just try to think of things that are interesting to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I use myself a lot. I'd be like, what do I want to listen to? You know? And just to clarify, it doesn't have to be a CTO. The We look at it from a content perspective. Like, as long as the content is interesting to the audience, then it's cool. Um, so, that's, but, but 80% plus of the episodes are CTOs. Yeah, so, and I, I guess I should caveat that as well. A lot of times it's not uh, CTOs, it's, Topics CTOs would care about uh, yeah. and guests that CTOs would care about. So we had one careers episode where, and I'm sure you've experienced this, the type of content, the types of content that does well on the general social media platforms, YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, et cetera. Like we're talking like scale, the, the platforms that the, the topics that scale are like entry level career topics. If you're talking about how to break into IT or how to uh, get your first job as a network administrator or security professional coming from the support desk, those, because the audience is very big for those types of, of, of topics. Uh, what is less successful is, or I don't want to say successful, or what doesn't scale as well is these mid mid career topics like how do you go how do you move a senior person on from one senior role to another senior role or how do you keep them how do you retain them like if you've had 10 or 15 years of experience how do you move along your career at that point there's less of those people kind of by rule uh, in the audience, but CTOs want to know this. CTOs, CIOs, and COs want to know this so they can attract customers. So we or uh, attract talent. So we will run those types of guests as well. Again, kind of your point is if I find it interesting, chances are it's a great thing about like the internet. If I find it d d interesting, there's probably a tribe of people out there like me. So expanding kind of the content beyond podcasts, we do papers we do oh cool uh custom video we do events etc so getting people interested in the cto advisor content in general has taken 
and and it's still taking a lot of concerted effort to make sure I understand who my audience is and why I'm creating the content. So I try and ask myself some basic questions whenever I create content, especially content that I'm investing a bunch of resources into. Uh, for instance, we just spent $100,000 on some server gear for the data center. That's, you know, that's, I'm a small business. I only have a couple of employees or like three employees and a hundred thousand dollar investment is a really big it's a huge investment deal. for me. Yeah. yeah, it's huge. It's very big investment. And the, we ask ourselves some basic questions like who are we creating, creating this content for? Like who, who's this for? Like, it, is it just for Keith to have, you know, I like, I just happen to like a hundred thousand dollar servers, but you know, <laughs> not so well healed that I'll just go out and buy a hundred thousand dollar server. But who will consume this content? Why will they come consume this content? And what will bring them back to kind of get back into the story? And then there's the balance of, you know, do am I selfish with the information? Uh, one of the, I kind of tweeted out, hey, I bought this $100,000 thing. And one of my audience members mentioned, oh, I can't wait to see the write-up on that. I have I had no intention of doing a write up on this thing. It was kind of a thing we needed, and yeah, I could make some money off of. Well, I it would be super interesting for my audience to hear about it, but I wouldn't necessarily make any money off of it directly. And that has been one of my most interesting balances: how to balance, how to be kind of how to stay open. And have a business model at the same time. Because typically what I would like to do is for the hardware manufacturer that I bought the the $100,000 thing from to sponsor the content because they're getting free publicity. But at the end of the day, I'm here to serve my audience. And if I'm not serving my audience, they'll find somewhere else to go. Yeah. Who? who what type of server did you buy? It's a uh, HPE DHCI system. So it's a... a hyper-converged infrastructure system, a couple of servers, the storage array, and a whole whole bunch of memory and disk. The one of the interesting things I like to tell people about that is that one-fifth of the cost is memory. Like physically, one-fifth of the cost is for DRAM. And so why did you need DRAM is expensive. Why did you need this uh, server, this powerful server? So power isn't necessarily the thing that made us buy the server. So we built a data center to tell the enterprise IT journey, what we wanted to be able to do since we're not doing proper advisory work. And even if I did do proper advisory work, it's really hard for me to take a customer's story, generic size it enough that I can share with my audience. So that's one of the other conflicts of having a content slash advisory business. So we said, okay, why don't we just go on the journey with our customer? Why don't we build a legacy data center, which is what we did in 2020. We took a kind of five-year-old technology, deployed it into a proper data center with, you know, uh, guards with guns and super redundant power, 10 gig internet access, 10 gig access to the public cloud, like a proper enterprise data center that looks like much of the environments I've supported throughout my career. And one of our first sponsorships was Intel to 
help us modernize that data center. So take it from you, you know, kind of you know that five-year-old busted environment that's quite frankly most people probably still have today to this new environment that's going to have 25 gig networking, 100 gig interconnects, Intel or AMD uh, latest gen processors, a ton, ton of DRAM, NVMe storage, just a modern data center. And so what we discovered along our walk is the same thing that most people discover is that the difficulty isn't in the bits, the speeds and feeds and all of that. That's All that stuff is solved. The difficulty is taking your legacy operations, which we had because we built it, we built in technical debt from the start and migrate from that technical debt into this new environment. And we have the same challenges that every other enterprise IT shop has. How much time do I spend on researching firmware, uh, upgrading VMware vSphere, configuring network ports, et cetera, versus learning Kubernetes? Uh, internet control planes like or any uh, internet public cloud control planes like AWS or, or Google Cloud or OCI, et cetera. How do I balance that? I only have so many resources, but I have all the challenges of an enterprise IT shop. So we narrowed down on a solution that's going to automate some of that mundane, like looking from, for firmware upgrades, uh, uh, firmware compatibilities, uh, uh, automating the provisioning of storage lines, all of that stuff that I don't want to spend money and resources doing, the these solutions do for me. So we bought it for that, not necessarily because we have some some super fast application or some uh, a, a ton of data that we need to ingest and we need to process that data. No, this is because we're on the same journey as our audience. We want to feel their pain and experience what they experience and tell that story. Well, that is awesome. So you did the project before in 2020 where you built that legacy data center and then you upgraded it to understand all the pain. And Mm -hmm. then you've recently bought this new $100,000 server. Um, And what... Is that an older one? Is it a brand new one? What's your hopes of your experience with that? What, what lessons will that yield? It's a it's a brand new one. So the lessons that we've learned so far, a couple of lessons. Will uh, I'm actually putting together, and it's timely because I just did a, a short video on Twitter about it right before we hit record for this. Nothing's ever as easy as vendors make it out to look like. <laughs> I, we're we're definitely going to get some benefit out of this thing. It is brand new. Like it, it, I bought it from CDW. I arranged financing through HPE Financial. Like I, it is the full customer experience. The only thing that we didn't do was pay for professional services to have it installed because who has time for that? I know how to turn a knob, and we've learned. The same thing that I've learned repeatedly over my career, that none of this stuff is as shiny as they make it out to be in the sales presentation. Fortunately, we had already deployed one of these as a sponsored project with HPE last year. So we kind of knew what we're getting into. But now we're actually integrating it into our environment and we're running into all of the problems you would traditionally. And on top, top of that, we're 
I'm not going to say we're pandemic world. We're, we're, we're new normal when it comes to working from home. I don't have anyone permanently positioned at the data center. So when there's basic things that need to be done, like I need a NIC card moved from one machine to another machine, this solution doesn't change those basics, you know, the basics of physics for me. Uh, I still have those challenges and I have to weigh like the value of automating the environment as much as possible versus just waiting a week until we can get somebody out there or paying the $75 an hour to have remote hands handle something to the best of their ability. So there's trade-offs. So even with this $100,000 investment, I'm not going to get you know, to where I want to get to from an operating model, but I will get to it from a uh, lessons learned. So when I share the experience with, with my audience in a month or two, they're going to get the full richness of someone who kind of knows their pain. Yeah. And I'm curious. So do you think it's because technology is moving so fast that these companies don't have time to actually do mock scenarios like yours and make the product easier to use before releasing it to market? Or do you think that they just don't care as much or what? Yeah, it's hard. Uh, I wish they, the, the answer to the question is I wish they would have more resources to do it, but I'll give you an example of uh, something that happened in our data center about a year or so ago. We did a, a project for one of uh, the public cloud companies, and we've done projects for all but one of the public cloud companies now. And a team within, you know, these companies are huge. A team within that company needed to validate a software solution. Uh, that a software solution worked on their stack. That software solution extended the private data center into the public cloud. And not of, of these multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar companies, none of them had any environment to do that validation test testing in. They would have had to stand up. Uh, they would have had to, you know, go out and sign a colo agreement, stand up the servers, et cetera. And they say, hey, Keith, since we just did this project with you, can we just use your data center to do it? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not value add, do the project? They call uh, the support. One of the validation engineers called me and said, hey, is it possible for you to change your whole IP, IP addressing scheme to be this static IP addressing scheme? Because we the test suite uh, assumes a certain set of IP addresses. And of course, I'm like, no, that's we're not. No, this isn't a paid engagement and we're not going to do that. But it shows the level of complexity when you want to do this level of software testing or integration testing to get the product out the door. You have to make assumptions and sometimes they make the wrong assumptions. It's happened with every HCI solution or DHCI solution that I've that I've provisioned. It's like, oh, we are, if you're familiar with IT infrastructure in general, there's, you know, VMware vSphere is the biggest solution out there. And they just make decisions like, oh, everyone's VMware vSphere looks, environment looks the same. So the automation is baked on that. And their claims that you can deploy the solution in 15 minutes or 20 minutes is caveated by, oh, just as long as your solution, your environment looks like this. Otherwise, it's going to take two weeks. Got it. Got it. And it's hard, too, because, like, there's not a real awesome answer to that. I mean, 
you have to build it to something and you can't build it to everything. You know, you would never get the product out the door if you built it to perfectly support 15 minute deployments on every variation. Right. Yeah. And you, uh, you know, technical debt, uh, technical debt is a thing. I love the saying that it is additive. Every time you add a, buy a new solution, you're expanding the surface area of what you have to support. You rarely reduce it. I had this argument uh, when Nutanix, one of the biggest or the biggest HCI vendor out came out and they had this argument that HCI saves money. And I fought back a little bit and said, you know what, if you're a small shop and you're replacing all of your storage arrays and servers with Nutanix and HCI, that is true. You will save money. But if you're a big enterprise IT shop, you know, Walmart, let's let's pick on Walmart because they're a publicly uh, they're publicly a a Nutanix customer. Uh, Walmart is also publicly a HPE customer. They're also publicly a Dell customer and they have all these different solutions. And the HCI thing that was supposed to save you all this money is just another thing. And it's a, another thing that you have to support and you have to add to your overall IT cost. So when a new solution comes out to, to market, whether it's cloud, serverless, Kubernetes, it really doesn't matter. It's all additive. I like to go back and talk to the Kubernetes cloud folks or the serverless folks. And I say, you know what, as we zoom out and you, let's talk to your enterprise architect about how they're still supporting OpenStack or how they're still supporting uh, services they built via AWS 10 years ago and how they're thinking about bringing that stuff back on-prem because it's no longer being invested in and there's just technical debt and they need a way to control the cost of it versus uh, continue to innovate on the on the platform. So that is the journey that we're talking about. Like, how do how are we making these decisions and these trade offs? When someone says, "Hey, Keith, you're still on vSphere. Why don't you move to Kubernetes?" Like, it's not that simple. It, uh, it's not that simple for the real world, and it's not that simple for my world, which is now the real world. Yeah. No, you have a a deep um, background in infrastructure. So I, mean, I can just tell because uh, because my background that I go really deep in is uh, like software development, like best practices with writing scalable software, test driven development, things like that. So I, I went like a mile deep there and I only learned enough infrastructure stuff to like stand up MVPs, get money behind it and then hire an infrastructure person that's smart, that knows how to do it, to take it beyond beyond that. So it's like stand it up, get the first customer. And then, so I, I don't have really any experience. So as you're talking about all this stuff, I was like trying to really wrap my mind around, you know, how you, like you keep saying you, you have this data center and I'm like, well, what, what do you do with it? Is it just like a mock environment or are you actually like legitimately using it for some project or? Yeah. So I love the fact that you're, you have software chops and this will help kind of paint the picture and, and, Comparative, I can go a mile deep in infrastructure and an ankle deep in software development. So we'll complete each other's sentences. <laughs> you complete <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let's say 10 years ago, you built a monolithic application on 
AWS's control plane. Like, yeah, you're using different services from the control plane to build the service, but essentially it's a monolith. And five years later, the applications mature. Like, there is no new feature. Feature requests have slowed down. Uh, we It's time to move this application to steady state. You have your new project that you need to do. You know, there's the new there's the new hotness, whatever the business process or whatever that you want to uh, write software for. You've now, you know, you've you've you're now using modern software practices. You've probably adopted Kubernetes, CI, CD pipelines, etc. And then someone taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, Joel, go back and update that now 10 year old app. Your response uh, is more than likely going to be what? I don't want to do it. <laughs> Find someone yeah. else. I don't remember how. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I don't remember how. I don't want to do it. Uh, where's the business value in that? Like, if it's a 10-year-old app, what's the business value in bringing a 10-year-old app to Kubernetes? If I'm not actively developing it anymore, where's the business value? So that is a reality that as an infrastructure guy, I've accepted. It is my job to compliment you as the developer and make you go faster. So that 10-year-old app that you no longer want to maintain is for me to figure out how to keep that running and keep the infrastructure moving as you're solving problems. So all of that legacy data center that I've built, I put mock apps on that are 10 years old. I put some new stuff on there. And then I help tease out and say, when should I put the new stuff on new stuff? And when does the new stuff become old enough that it needs to go on the old stuff? Because the old stuff isn't going away. It's just palling, 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 palling. And it's not reasonable. And it took me a long time after talking to folks like you to, re to accept this. It's not reasonable to ask me to come to you and ask you to keep the old stuff modern it's just that's not reasonable yeah it's like because the business value isn't there and then how are you going to pay people paychecks to do it when no one's paying you to modernize that like i was so blown away when i got into this whole talking to other people uh, other technology leaders across all these industries to find out that there are still like huge portions of mission critical systems for us as a people in the United States that still run on these old, old mainframes that basically nobody really knows how to run. And they're just like fingers crossed type deal. Yeah. the I went into the manufacturing floor of a major pharmaceutical company and a med they make a very important medicine. And the way the FDA works, when you formulate a manufacturing process on a computer system, that computer system is validated, becomes validated. You can't change it out. Like, because it was validated, because the manufacturing process was validated on a system in a snapshot in time, 20 years later, you still need to, the manufacturing process still needs to operate on that validated computer system. So in this very modern um, pharmaceutical company, every other sense of the word, 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 you may not be familiar with the name, but I'll give some context. There's a DEC alpha system on the floor. HPE bought DEC alpha back in 1999. 
So there's no there there hasn't been a net new deck system since maybe 2002 2003 at the at the latest. HP the HP well actually HP bought them then HP HP became HPE but to the point that that system still needs to be maintained because of regulatory reasons. I visited during our CTO advisor road trip which we hadn't talked about at all uh, last year where you know me and my wife toured the country and talked to CTOs and kind of brought really? the discussion to yeah it was a really fun trip we're planning on doing it again this year and we brought the discussion to to the various regions of the country we stopped off in boston and stopped at hpe financial services this uh, reclamation system where they buy uh old equipment from customers and then refurbish it and send it out they had dozens of deck alpha systems it's a huge part of their system it's uh, a, a huge part of their it's a not insignificant part of their revenue to lease back these ancient systems and support these ancient systems because they're still mission critical in a lot of environments. That is, that is crazy. Where, where did you go? So you went Boston. Where, where else did you go? So we started, we're in Chicago or in Chicagoland. Oh. So we started out Chicago. We headed out Northeast. So we hit, uh, I'll do the, the quick tour Cleveland. Boston, oh, I'm sorry, Cleveland, Philly, Boston, New York, D.C. We took a week off in Tampa to visit family, Atlanta, uh, Austin, Houston, well, Houston, then Austin, L.A., San Fran, Seattle, Portland, Colorado, and then home. So wow. 96 days in total from door to door. Out the door Whoa. to back home. And you ran interviews while you were remote or you just relationship so, building and hung out with people? Uh, both interviews and relationship building. We talked to one of our favorite conversations is in uh, Akron, Ohio. We talked to a small business. They're a manufacturer. They do signage, uh, like metal signage, anything that uh, machines, they create machines to do signage. So anything that has to do with stamping or, or signage, they do. And I was just fascinated. I asked them, you know, I would have thought that all of this it would have been outsourced to China by now. And it, it was really, really interesting as a business owner talking to another business owner about how they're competing with China, keeping up with their customer demands, reacting to their customer demands, uh, how they had this 40-year-old piece of equipment right next to a piece of equipment they just paid $300,000 for and how both was generating revenue for them and also adjusting to the pandemic. Probably my most enjoyable conversation, maybe maybe not the most geeky, but definitely the most enjoyable conversation is we just went across the nation talking to people doing stuff during the height of the pandemic. And some of those episodes are on your podcast? So we didn't release any as podcasts, but uh, they are on the YouTube channel. There's a whole playlist. The uh, So, you know, if you visit YouTube slash CTO Advisor, you'll find all of that, uh, all of that wonderful content. So we're, we're looking to see how to, you know, more formally do it this year as we look for sponsors and, and uh, events. What we want to do is... 
at the end of this trip, we want, and there's a pretty cool theme to it. It's kind of like, where's the cloud? So we're going to set out and we're, we will talk to customers and IT vendors and other analysts and ask them, hey, how do you get to the cloud? Then at the end, uh, whatever VMworld is going to be called this year, whether it's VMworld or some other conference, we'll end up pulling our Airstream trailer onto the showroom floor and say, hey, we've made it to the cloud and have a conversation around our journey to the cloud. Oh, so, nice. Yeah, that's, so that's pretty that's, cool. That's the vision. We'll see if it. Uh, we we'll see if our sponsors uh, pony up the bill to actually make that happen. But that's that's the vision. Yeah, we actually like had sold everything. I don't know, like ten months or so ago. My wife and I we were in Florida, so I'm a native to like Bradenton, Tampa area. Um, mm-hmm. So that's cool that you have family down there. And we sold everything, bought a fifth wheel, you know, a camper, and uh, spent seven months just traveling around the United States. Um, I went and got to like meet is, different people. Yeah. That is so yeah. crazy that we've done similar things. Seven months is probably a little bit more practical uh, time period. And the fifth wheel may be a little bit more comfortable than my Airstream. Oh, yeah. I, I, do, yeah. I do really like the Airstream, but it is, it's tight. And uh, living in it for three months, uh, while oh, it's, it's well appointed, <laughs> is uh, that was really interesting and constantly moving was something uh, the the not having the address thing though that that took uh, that takes a little bit of getting used to out of imagine oh yeah well there's a thing called my rv mail and they give you mm-hmm. like a legit address in the state that you want and so we just have all the mail there we see it come in through the app and then we just tap on the things that we want them to open up and they open and scan them and then if i click a button they'll actually mail it to whatever address i want them to mail it to so um, that's pretty like a, cool what was what what was the biggest kind of uh shock or lesson learned from rving for seven months uh biggest shock was that like you're technically considered homeless <laughs> i was filling out some paperwork and stuff for the kids or whatnot and i was like what i was like oh okay fine um there was that uh but honestly so i have two kids as well a third on the way but we just did this with two kids a four and a three-year-old so we started out with a bumper pool, smaller trailer, and then we quickly mm-hmm. realized, uh-oh, <laughs> we yeah. have to spend more money. Yeah, and uh, and then at first we were driving around. We did one big circle around the U.S. first, and then we realized that the concept of like driving two or three days, stopping for two days, driving to like the constant moving is like untenable, especially with children. Yes. Um, so we decided like let's go, you know, stay in this park for a month then let's go stay in this park for a month. And then that, that was way more doable. And then, uh, it got cold. And so we're sitting there freezing in the trailer, like three, four months ago, (laughs) just going through Zillow. Like maybe we need a house again. We're freezing. And, uh, we found this little farm in Tennessee. And so we, we bought that and, um, now we've been here for two months. So. Isn't it really cool to be able to do our jobs in, uh, in RV? Well, one, the, the thing that I learned about doing our jobs in an RV is internet is really hard. Like, Oh, yeah. That's a re- really hard problem. How did you solve your internet connectivity issues? I rented hotel rooms when I had to do shows. And uh, I hired another host, Adam. So uh, originally, like, it was going to be a summer thing. And so mm-hmm. we did a summer trip, like a six-week trip. And then we're just like... At the end of that six-week trip, we went home and sold everything in like one week and then went full-time. So 
in that summer takeover we did with Adam, he was like a great host. So I was like, all right, well, I'm not the only one who has to host it. So he would host some. And then when I could get to hotels and rent rooms, um, especially for the sponsored ones, that was really easy, right? Then I could, the hotels had really stable internet overall. So the entire time I was like, hurry up, Elon. What are you doing, bro? Like, get me, <laughs> get me one of those satellites I, quick, I, I, man. Uh, yeah, I finally got approved for the, well, I had ordered it over a year ago, well over a year ago. And beginning of March, I finally got my notice. Hey, your your thing is going to ship. Just confirm it. And then at that point, I'm like, ah, I don't know. I I have friends that friends that live off of it, and it, for RVer, and if it works for RVing, it is a godsend. But it is nothing like having a permanent hardwired connection that is not full of latency because if you're interviewing folks the latency between uh for that it introduces is uh, is quite substantial oh yeah the best conversations are when you can have it in person but that's definitely gotten less popular in the past couple years so we've just been doing the best to like you know build an interesting set and increase our mic and video quality and do do everything we can do within our control to make it the best experience possible. So what part of Tennessee are you in? So I'm an hour outside of Nashville in a town called Clarksville. So we were just in Nashville the weekend for before last. So we could have done okay. we could have done this live in the studio uh, because I uh, know, right? uh, yeah, we spent the week uh we were Similar to we were uh, for a week we were homeless. We or actually two whole weeks we were homeless. We between closing on houses, we said, you oh. know what? Why stay at a hotel? Let's just jump in the airstream and hit the road again. So we started. You know, it's cold in Chicago, and we just started traveling south. And we stopped in Nashville, and we're like, yeah, yeah, this is this is good. And maybe about fifteen yeah. minutes away from Opry. and uh, and we were like, okay, and we spent the week in Nashville, and not anything on the on the calendar we had pretty decent lte access and uh we hung out for a week so we could have done yeah we could have done this in person well next time you're down in nashville let me know and come by the studio i built the studio like on my property as a separate building um mm -hmm. so that way now i just have to like walk 25 yards to my work <laughs> and and there's gigabit internet out here man how crazy is that? I'm like, out isn't that crazy? I have another friend, uh, Chris Kalati, who's in uh, Tennessee. I'm not sure which part of Tennessee he's in, but he also has gigabit internet up and down. I'm like, son of a, I have gigabit down, but I don't have gigabit up. But again, for what we do, gigabit up would be much more preferable than gigabit yeah. down. Yeah. And one of the reasons I found is there's like a bunch of government programs that actually would pay companies like they could go get money to install this stuff and yes. the government would help pay subsidize it for them. So honestly, I'm not a huge, I like small limited government, but when I saw that program, I was like, yes, because what that does <laughs> is it puts, it makes the, like all these places more accessible and you get a better quality of life. Cause you can, you don't have to live in the city for amazing stuff. And, uh, yeah, so overall it's pretty, and Musk even got in on that a little bit too, cause they qualified under the Starlink system as well for it. Yeah, the uh, I've been following the Starlink thing for a while. As you as you think about uh, rural Native American uh, reservations, places that just won't get the investment otherwise, and having this type of access, uh, the new 
America's field CTO for VMware. I had her on the podcast a few weeks ago. Uh, Amanda Blevins, she uh, lives in a very rural area, and it's literally her lifeline. Another guy, uh, Joe Onisic, who is on the border of Wyoming and Montana, you know, not exactly third world country at all. He's living off, we just did a podcast with him last week, and he's living off of uh, Starlink. So I'm a huge, huge fan of getting as much bandwidth as you can to areas that are uh, low in opportunity because I feel like it's just like when I was a kid and I got my first PC and it was just life-changing. I think uh, getting folks high-speed internet is one of the best investments the public can make because, again, you know, as you think about areas not too far from you like Appalachia, uh, parts of Alabama, Mississippi, rural Tennessee, where there's not the infrastructure for these types of tech jobs. And now you can send somebody to a boot camp and they can actually get a six figure job and not have, not leave their town. How does that transform their town when there's, you know, how does it transfer the town when there's only 10 or 15? I, I say this lightly, but I don't mean it as a slight. I mean, when you add 10 or 15 people to a small town that make six figures, that changes the town. Absolutely. It changes the town's purchasing power considerably. And these small towns, they're like small towns too. And um, it's, I, I, th- I think of it like building the highway system. Like once you put these, uh, you know, internet systems in, once you b- built, run the fiber, right, that's like building the road. Now people can come out here. Now they can drive out here. Now they can come live out here and work out here. Um, so I, I was really excited about that. And uh, also we got like the latest technology, right? So like if you're downtown in the city of Chicago, you might have older technology than me out in the sticks in Tennessee <laughs> because they just That is definitely it. the case. That yeah. is definitely, definitely the case. The, you'd be surprised how many buildings are still only DSL only. Yeah. I haven't heard that in a long time. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 there are, I did a project maybe two years ago. I reviewed a, a, a building getting upgraded to fiber so that they can get fiber from the phone company. It was an immense, it's old building. It's, it was an immense expense. And they punted and said they'll just stay DSL. Yeah. The infrastructure isn't there for, they do uh, DSL and DirecTV for, uh, for television because they don't have the infrastructure to run coax. Wow. Wow. Well, and this I is downtown sure Chicago. I'm, I'm not surprised. The stuff I've heard through, I, I'm never surprised. All I That's why I just constantly refocus on the future. <laughs> Where are we going? I don't want to look that too much over there. Um, but I, I know we're coming up on time. I, I saw in my producer's note that there was a hard stop here at the top of the hour. So I don't want you to be late to your next meeting. But I also want to make sure, um, because we are still recording, what are what's like a great episode somebody can listen to on your podcast that you want to send some of our listeners over to check out? You know what? The, the one that a lot of people really enjoyed is a conversation I had with Kelsey Hightower about a year, year and a half ago. Kelsey works for Google Cloud. Uh, if you're in the cloud native space at all, you're familiar with them. It was kind of this. Kelsey has an infrastructure background as well, but he's also a developer. So it was this old school enterprise IT guy, me, talking to this Kubernetes guy. And the 
it was just magical. Maybe one of my most downloaded podcasts because we appeal so much to this crossover audience of developer and infrastructure guy and helping make an argument for for Kubernetes and when to kind of not not do Kubernetes. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll check that out. We'll put a link in the show notes so that people can go check out that episode as well when they're listening. And, uh, man, and so, Joel, we we'll do it. the we... same thing because we're cross-promoting uh, okay. platforms. What's, what's the must-listen episode for you? So I would say it's the one with the most – I've gotten the most feedback lately from this one I did with John Lennox. Um, and he is, like, super smart, Oxford-type individual uh, that studies, like, AI, and he's probably 70 – seven or eight or something like that he's he's much older um but he like studied under like c.s lewis and stuff and and he talked Mm. about um the intersection of like ai ethics and christianity and i was and he just brought up some really different views it was really cool to talk to like a, a very intelligent like pragmatic scientist type person and then have him discuss like ethics and ai and how that intersects with you know, Christianity and religion. And, and, uh, it was a really cool conversation that I still get a bunch of messages about. Oh, I, I, that is super appealing to me. I got to check it out. Yeah. Yeah. So man, we made a podcast. How do you feel? I feel great. It was, uh, about time. We've been trying to do this for a while and we finally did it. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.